Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The word of the Lord. Morning. Morning. It's going to be a little low for my reading glasses. Give me a second. I wonder if I could do that. I could work the stage really well if I did that, but that's probably not my best move. Sorry. Thank you. That's awesome. That's right. You don't do that to the guy who's never been here before. Now I'm being pranked. Johnny will love that. A little more. All right. That's good. Good morning. All right. Let's pray. Dear God, we come together to gather, to worship, and to sing as we have of our need for you. And as we gather, you alone know just what those needs look like in this room. Those of us who have spiritual needs, maybe physical needs, emotional needs, relational needs, financial needs, all the above. Would we offer ourselves to you as we have looked all summer and seen that you created us and crafted us. We place ourselves in trust into your loving care as we sit here this morning. And we do it together. Lord, some of us may be able to to raise a hand that we need for you, some two hands, some maybe just a finger. But we gather each other and lift each other's arms up to say, here we are, your people, and please help us. And for anyone who's here this morning and doesn't know you, maybe exploring just what it means, maybe sensing their need of you a little bit, help them know that they are in good company and not alone. In your name, amen. Amen. As uh, Corky said, I'm back. I was here last week, and you'll get me next week. So some of you may be like, man, I'm going to be out of town next week then. But Johnny will be back too. So um, I'm particularly glad to be able to give Johnny three weeks break. I'm preaching. It's a real delight uh, to do that for him. But it's also, as always, a real delight to you. You are big parts of my heart, 
And so it's great to be here. If you have a Bible and can open it to Genesis 3, that'd be great. You just heard those verses read. Now, if you've heard me here before, you know I love a redemption story. We talk a lot about redemption and redemption stories as we looked at Scripture together. But I also love cautionary tales. Redemption stories and cautionary tales. Most of the stories you and I read, watch, listen to are probably one of those two. Redemption stories or cautionary tales. Occasionally they have both elements stitched in. I love a cautionary tale, a story that doesn't end how you and I would expect and gives a true telling of moral failure and its consequences. This week I thought, what cautionary tales do I like that are movies? And it didn't take me long. Well, some of you may remember I've seen A Simple Plan. Anybody seen A Simple Plan? It's about 25, 30 years old. This is not a fun movie, date night. Hey, you're not going to leave the movie feeling that way about it. But you will leave, as a cautionary tale, warned. Some of you may have seen Marriage Story a couple years ago. Won some Oscars up for Oscars. Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson. Brilliantly done cautionary tale about the pain of divorce, about not prioritizing your covenant. There's a, there's a fight in that scene, a verbal fight they have, that if you are married and you deal with loving each other in a covenant, you watch that fight and go, well, if, that's, if, that's, if, if those emotions were unhinged, that's what it looks like. It's terrible, but cautionary. Movie this year with Bradley Cooper, Nightmare Alley. Anybody see Nightmare Alley? Kate Blanchett, Bradley Cooper again. Not a happy movie, <laughs> but a brilliantly told cautionary tale about power, the lure of power. This past week, my wife and I and our uh, younger son, Duncan, watched a movie called Another Round, which is a, a Danish film that came out two or three years ago. Um, it stars Mads Mikkelsen, who is the bad guy in Cosina Real, the Schieffer who has the scar in his eye, the James Bond film. And that, he was up for Academy Awards at one awards a couple years ago in a national film. And it's, it's a Danish director talking about the, the cultural push in Denmark to hide what's really going on in alcohol. And again, parts of it redemptive, parts of it very cautionary. Maybe again, you love cautionary tales too. You know, why do we watch these? I watch them because they inform and they convict and they warn and they, I think they subtly open up ourselves to prophetic insight. Oh, this is a warning. I was reminded as I thought about this passage this week of a friend of mine in college named Mike Lee. Mike's parents were Hispanic and he grew up and told, would tell stories about it. when he was on the edge of doing something bad, his dad would look at him and say, cuidado, cuidado, which is be careful, right? Be careful, don't do that. This could happen to you. So far this summer, you and I together, you especially have immersed yourself in the first two chapters of Genesis at our creation and our forming. And again, these basic questions of theology, who is God and anthropology, who are we and how those questions are inherently stitched. Understanding one informs the other. We've seen God's creative power, his creative words, his creative crafting, his creative love. We've also seen our dignity and our need for one another, our unique responsibility and vocation. We have been soaked in creation. Literally, by the end last week of chapter two, it's all good. Ever use that phrase? How are you doing? It's all good. End of chapter two in Genesis, all good. Couldn't be better. We finish with this hymn to the creation of 
Eve of women. But the story takes a turn, right? A cautionary turn. As the authors, both divine and inspired of Genesis, say, cuidado. And you and I hear and read a story that both explains the world around us and warns us prophetically of our own weakness. Now, as I've spent time in this chapter this week, I frankly find it this year more burdensome than I normally do. Burdened, I think, by the world and everything that's gone on. Not Usually I read it and I feel my individual burden about how prophetic it is in my own life. But this year particularly, I feel it just burdened the whole weight of it. And so my goal this morning as we look at it is to really look at it, but also to seek God and cry for help as a warning to us. Oh, this is who I am and could be. And Lord, help me choose you when I'm tempted the way Adam and Eve are tempted. So again, turn with me to Genesis 3. I'm going to make a few broad observations and then, as I often do, focus on a few specific things as we finish. Chapter 2, finished with this glorious garden. Remember, God made the heavens and the earth and then uh, Eden, excuse me, and then the garden in Eden where he put us. And he put man and woman there. But chapter 3 begins with a whole different tone, right? It starts with not God, not Adam and Eve, but with an editorial comment about snakes. It was kind of weird. We haven't heard about other specific animals. Golden retrievers are friendly. Rabbits like to hop. Snakes are crafty. No, it starts with snakes. They're crafty. They're devious. They're available to the devil's bending. And we hear a snake, and apparently at that point in time, and even animals could talk. That is just a fun little observation anyway. But a snake engages Eve, right? Actively seeks her out with this seductive question about creation and trees and what she's allowed to eat or not eat. And did God really say? Again, fundamentally raising a question about trusting God. What's, what is the devil doing here through the snake? Remember, the fundamental intent of, of us and God and this garden we're in, where Adam and Eve are, is intimacy and trust and thriving under the loving, creative care of God. Remember last week we were told we have both a vocation and then a permit, sort of a guarding and a constraints. Like we're set up to thrive. That's the fundamental intent of us in the garden. The fundamental intent of the devil is to beg the question of whether we can trust that loving care and plan of God. He wants to break that trust. So the core tactic here is to introduce a question. Did God really say? This week I read a, a commentator, a real man, Kent Hughes, and this is how Hughes sums up that scene between Adam and Eve and the snake. How, how can God be good and not give me the person or thing or position or experience that I deem essential to my happiness? Anybody ever wrestled with that question? How can God be good and not give me the person or thing or position or car or acceptance into the college I want or the kids that I'd like or experience that I deem essential to my happiness? Remember last week we said we are created theomorphically in God's image 
And we've stepped in, been crafted into a story by this God. And so the tension we feel is whether to choose that theomorphic understanding of our best life or the anthropomorphic. I am the source of my best life. I know what will bring me happiness or I'll trust that God knows what will bring me happiness. How can God be good? When you and I begin to mull on that question, my hope and prayer after we're together this morning is that what you begin to hear is, cuidado. The devil lays breadcrumbs to appeal to us to be like God, to make it look like God is restricting Adam and Eve and us from full humanity. You've been using Ephesians as too, as a, uh, a creed the last few weeks, not this morning, but the last few weeks. And remember, Ephesians helps us understand the world by reminding us what's against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in this passage, it's all there, right? You have the world, the snake, you have the flesh, Adam and Eve, and you have the devil behind the snake. Begging, how can God be good and not give me? Dot, dot, dot. The scholar I've quoted a lot, Walter Brueggemann, the sermon with you guys, says this. With what the devil has done here, the givenness of God's rule is no longer the boundary of a safe place. God is now a barrier to be circumvented. The prohibition has been violated. Remember, we're given a vocation, a permit, and a constraint. The permit is perverted and the vocation is neglected. Adam and Eve are sincerely tempted, both of them. There's some implication in the Hebrew that Adam's with Eve while she's talking to the snake. So we see Eve interact with the snake, begin to change some of what God said to her with how she responds to the snake. We're not even supposed to touch the tree. That's not what God said. He said, don't eat of the tree. And then she engages, right? Her heart and her mind, well, it looks good. I'd kind of like to have the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe God doesn't. Maybe I know what I can bear. Remember, God's intent on the knowledge of good and evil was it's too much for you and I to bear to understand just how vast this all is. So Eve is seduced and she eats. And Adam passively sits by. So striking. Pretend this is a play. And the end of chapter two is the end of a scene. And that scene, if we're up here, Adam is the lead character and he is singing a song, a poem over Eve. And what a joy it is to be given this bride. It's very powerful. It's poetry. He's finishing with leadership and responsibility in speech. Very noble. But here in chapter three, if you're staging it, you put Adam on the stage What's he do? Where is that speech that he's been given, created in God's image? The only reason you and I have speech, we talked about that way back in June. What's he using his speech to do? To push back the devil and the snake? To protect his wife? To tell her no, no, no? Yeah. Corky just said he should be saying cuidado. But he doesn't. He, he, he seeks comfort in company. Well, I'll just go along. I don't like tension. I don't like conflict. I'm going to ignore it. Well, at least Eve and I will be okay. 
is utterly false. One of my favorite plays and movies is one called A Man for All Seasons. Also a bit of a cautionary tale. Um, no surprise this morning. By a man named Robert Bolt. And it's about Thomas More. And the tension More was put in and forced in when Henry VIII wanted to take Anne Boleyn for his wife. And Bolt is exploring just what it means to be human, to have ethical principles and to, to have consequences for those principles. As you may know, Moore eventually is, is killed for not providing affirmation for Henry's wedding to Anne Boleyn. And all of Moore's friends are, are saying, come with us. We've all said yes to the king. You can say publicly yes, but internally say no. Break the, the psychic integration of what you believe and how you act. And there's a scene where a man named Thomas Howard is, is begging Thomas More to come along with him. And he says, look, Thomas, just say it out loud. Guard your heart inside. Don't, don't mean it. But at least come with us for fellowship. Stay with us for fellowship, for community, for comfort. Because more standing where he's standing is making everybody else uncomfortable too. And, and in Bolt's words, what Moore says is, well, when you go to heaven for obeying your conscience and I go to hell for disobeying mine, will you join me then for fellowship? And that's the tension Adam and Eve have. Cuidado. How, how could God not give me what I want? Adam chooses that comfort, and then, of course, what happens? It's not comfortable at all. How would you describe what you think they're feeling there? If we took a few minutes and interact, we won't right now, but, and I said, describe what you think Adam and Eve are feeling then. What would you say? I bet you'd be very perceptive. Of course, what we know and scholars return to and pastors return to and you all return to in your own study and understanding of yourself is one of the things they feel is shame. For the first time, shame is introduced into creation. One scholar says this, fear and shame are henceforth, henceforth the incurable stigmata of the fall in humanity. Shame could be understood as the inward harmony and satisfaction with oneself are disturbed. Now they see and know more than they can handle which God didn't want them to have to do. How can God be good? And not give me the person or thing or position or experience that I deem essential to my happiness. And our deeming to what we know and think is essential, our choosing that is crushing. It's crushing today. This cautionary tale is helping us understand why. So what did they do? Of course, they run, they hide, they make probably very poorly fitting clothes. I can't imagine those clothes look good at all. Leaves and loincloths. And now instead of just creation being everywhere, and it still is, the fall is everywhere. It befouls our relationship with God. It befouls our relationship with ourselves. It befouls our relationship with our neighbors. Look how they treat each other. And it befouls the world. Thorns and thistles. Cuidado, cuidado, 
cuidado. This is a cautionary tale. So I want to I want to take that overarching look and give four observations. The last of which will remind us that we are live in a redeemed world, which we will celebrate at the table today. First, this happened in a perfect environment. The fall happened in that literally paradise. So beware any consideration in yourself that drive we all have. If I, if I could just make my situation perfect the way I think it could be perfect, I would be okay, the world would be okay. If I could just and take that thing that you think gets in the way of perfection for you and the thing you wish you could get rid of or have. And, and don't learn from this story. The setting is not the issue to your life and thriving with God. It's God. The difficulty is not the setting. It's us and our relationship with the Savior. Now, you and I are called as redeemed people, which we've talked about a lot, talked about a lot last summer, to, to bring the kingdom of heaven to the world to change the setting as a sign of what heaven's going to be. We pursue justice. We love our neighbors. We forgive our enemies. For sure, we change settings as transformed individuals. But, but don't buy into the idea that, well, if we could just create a perfect setting, there'd be no sin. It, it literally was all good. Couldn't have got better. There will not be a perfect setting safe from sin until Jesus returns. What makes it safe for you and I to live in the world with strength and courage is the fact that Jesus is on the throne and not in the tomb. So first, note, this happened in a perfect setting. Let this warning be. Don't seek a perfect setting. Ask God to save you and redeem you. Second, let's also note well for ourselves, again, the devil's tactics, because he uses the same ones on you and me that he does, does here with Adam and Eve. First, there is the doubting of God's goodness. This phrase I've continued to say over and over. How can God be good and not give me the person or thing or position or experience that I deem essential to my happiness? That question the devil will use on you and me again and again and again. One of the ways it's beautiful and painful in this passage is something we touched on last week. It's both implicit and explicit. Do you remember I talked about last week how the names of God in chapter one and chapter two are different? The name of God in chapter one is Elohim, which makes sense. He's over creation, forming the heavens and the earth. He's above everything. And then the name of God for chapter two, when he's down among us walking in the garden, keeping his covenant, is Elohim Yahweh, God with us. It's an echo of Jesus. God over and God with. If you were the devil trying to tempt someone to doubt the trusting love of God, which name would you use for God? The one that God's right here with you? He's committed to you in the garden? He, put, he, he formed you and put you in the garden to bear his image and be intimate with him? Is that the name we'd use? Or would you use the name like God's above and probably busy and but his cell phone's not charged? That's the name both the snake and Eve use in Genesis 3. Remember I said last week, those names are going to matter. This is why. 
When you begin to use names of God that he's far away, he's not close, not committed, it's a lie. It's not who God is. And it's, it's the devil's temptation. See how devious the devil is. He's, he's begging you to forget who God is. To forget the very character of God who made you. So he, he tactically wants you to doubt God's goodness. And then secondly, he wants the tension of that tactic to produce different inner and outer realities. Help us forget what the real questions are, that it's really the questions being begged, that he's begging, the snake, the devil, are about God. Because what's he do? He gets even to a discussion about trees. And if you read chapter 2 and 3, you'll see that's a theme throughout. There's the two trees in chapter 2. There's the tree and the fruit here. Where do Adam and Eve go hide? Among the trees. This is, this is beautiful, artful pain in a cautionary tale. But he engages her in a discussion about trees. Did God really say? Da, 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 da. That's the outer reality. So maybe the devil's engaging you in a discussion about lying on your taxes or texting that person who's not your spouse at work or about thinking, coveting someone else's house or car or finances or grades or boyfriend or girlfriend in high school or, or and you think that's what the discussion's about. But what it's really about, again, is this implicit begging of whether you can trust God and worship God. What you believe about who God is informs your everyday choices. I mentioned back on week one a book I recommended, and some of you have bought it, God bless you, and are wading your way through it by a book on Genesis, a commentary by a man named Bruce Waltke, W-A-L-T-K-E. And one of Dr. Waltke's steadfast teachings in class, he's an old, just a lovely, brilliant Old Testament scholar, was that your theology leads to your doxology and your doxology leads to your ethics. What you believe guides who you worship, which informs the choices you make. Do you believe you are theomorphic or anthropomorphic? Because that will inform who you worship and that will guide your choices. It could not be clear in this passage. The devil begs the name of God, the very name of God being with them, their theology, which invites Eve to begin to question who she's going to worship. And she gets anthropomorphic real fast, and she makes a terrible choice, and so does Adam. Note well the devil's destructive tactics. Third, see again that sin really, really is a terrible, terrible blast zone. Last summer, you may remember, we, did a, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the texts I preached on as we were, Johnny and I were doing that together was on blessed are those who seek righteousness. And I talked about what righteousness is because raise your hand if you've ever heard that word in the Bible, righteousness. Raise your hand if you ever felt like, I really understand what that means. It's used all the time. Exactly. That's why we talked about it. And what I said then was sin's effect. The blast zone is four-dimensional. First, it affects our upward relationship with God. Then it affects our inward relationship with ourselves. That's what, again, shame, insecurity. Then it affects our outward relationship with our neighbors. And then it affects creation. Right? It blows up creation, thorns and thistles. It's a 
Four-way blast zone, the perfect way to describe it, which I won't do here, would be profane. Everything goes to, and you can fill in the blank there on your own on the way home. That's what sin does. That's what righteousness is. You and I are then tasked, given the vocation, to pursue healing and help people know God, know themselves, know love their neighbors, and love the world. That's why it's a blessed gift for the kingdom. You and I are going to be sent at the end of the service to do that this week. But that's how big the blast zone is. It's terrible. When you and I sin, it's terrible. It affects generations. The Bible teaches that there's things I can, I can do or not do that will affect not just my kids, but my kids and my kids and my kids. I read a scholar this week. I'd never heard this. It's so brilliant. One of God's graciousness, gracious acts in Genesis 3 is to clothe Adam and Eve near the end, right? And I got to think those clothes look a lot better than the leaves. But in the clothing, do you realize what had to happen was their sins had to be atoned for by blood because God had to sacrifice animals and make their clothes out of animal skin. Right there, the sin has affected creation. It's the four-dimensional four blast zone is right there. So when you are tempted and it's hard, cry out for God's help. Lord, I need you and I don't want to forget the blast zone. What the devil will do in the moment is what happened to Eve and to Adam. They both had in the moment chances to do something differently. And they both chose to think about comfort or about the beauty of the eye and how cool it would be to maybe know knowledge of good and evil. And in those split-second moments, they could not push back and see the forest for the tree. No pun intended. But be reminded, it isn't just a small decision. There are movies out, I won't give names, but that you watch, and they make a show someone making a choice. This is the classic phrase. Well, I needed to just do this for me. Few years ago, one came out. I can't dance around enough without giving the movie away. But I remember watching and thinking, watching a character do that, and the whole movie up that had be this person made a choice that, that actually really affected their kids in a huge way. But when it came down to the summary statement of why they did it, this, the lead character said, well, I just, that was just a decision I did for me. And I remember thinking, Again, that's, it's so disingenuous. You just spent 30 minutes showing how affected the kids are, but the tagline to close the film off was, well, I just had to do that for me and myself. That's not how sin works. Because sin is not the act. Sin is the breaking of relationship by the act. Because what happens, the reason you know I need, need righteousness is because the four-dimensional breakup is f- with four different sets of people. God, yourself, your neighbors, and the world you're supposed to tend and honor in God. Again, sin is the breaking of relationship. I bet if you think about people who have hurt you, you know that. It is less what they did, but they broke your trusting love of each other. And that is a little vein of knowing how God feels when we break our trust of him. So fourth, See again that even here, God's redemptive, trusting, overwhelming love is being sown into the story. The gospel story is not just creation. The gospel story is not just creation and fall. 
which is where a lot of the North American church finishes over the years. The Bible doesn't end in Genesis 3 or 4 or 11. It ends at Revelation 22 at another garden and another feast and saved, redeemed people. So there are two lovely signposts of redemption even here in this terrible cautionary tale. First, of course, there's the promise of Jesus and the Lord's words and God's words to the snake that his head will be not lightly tapped on, not redirected away, but crushed. The devil will be crushed. Death will be defeated. It's definitive. It's authoritative. It's final. Here already in this cautionary tale is the promise of redemption. Second, are those clothes? Think if you were, some of you as parents would be able to understand this better, but if you're here as a parent or a godparent, aunt, uncle, you're taking care of kids, they do something wrong that bears consequences. And you're in charge of the garden at that moment. How do you send Adam and Eve out of the garden? Are they still in their leaves? Their large fig leaf clothing? Because what God does for you and me is stitch us clothes. The crafter from Genesis 2, the creator from Genesis 1, literally stitches clothes for Adam and Eve. I really wish we could see those. Sort of like we have the White House First Lady come through Smithsonian. Wouldn't it be cool if you could see those? That's how much God loves you. He is not sending you naked into the world. He has not turned his back on you. He's utterly still, covenantally still committed to you. The same names of Genesis 2 still apply to you. The lie the devil told about who God is is still utterly false. God will not send Adam and Eve out without knowing that the devil lied to them about who he is. And one of the ways he does it is by stitching them clothes. And we celebrate those clothes and we celebrate that crushed head again every week in communion because we believe now we don't live in a created and fallen world. You and I live in a created, fallen, redeemed world. And as bad as the fall was, is as great as being redeemed is, which is why, again, you and I are the children of the kingdom of heaven sent to say, we're going to bring righteousness. We're going to tell people, you're not stuck. You don't have to stay being lied to by the devil anymore. I know a God who is with me and created me and loves me enough to to cover my shame. Not just the death of animals, but the death of his son. So a few things to reflect on as we turn to communion and finishing our worship today. Again, I'd ask you to just consider maybe today or this week and interact with people you love and friends 
What do you deem essential to your happiness? Is there something tempting you to, to beg that question? How can God be good and not give me the person or thing or position? And you could fill that in. If you have something beckoning to you that is not of God, that's making you question God's goodness, own it and say to the Lord, Lord, I'm hearing this and I don't want to. I want to hear the warning, the cautionary tale. I hear cuidado, cuidado, cuidado. I don't want to do that. Maybe it's this morning and as you come for communion, you just say, Lord, here's that thing that I know is beckoning to me and I'm leaving it with you. I don't want to pursue that. Maybe again this morning you're in a place and you feel like I have done things I'm ashamed of and it's, I, I can't even believe that God would, would, would love me enough to die for me, that he would pull me up in redemption. And you need God to just remind you that you're stitched into the whole story, creation, fall, redemption. Let's pray. Dear God, we again come and know that these words are not an accident and it is a heavy story. And I don't need to convince anybody here that we live in a fallen world as well as a beautiful created world. And I pray, Lord, as we have said often when I've been with them this summer, that this series would give them courage to trust you. You know that we all have places in our lives where we might feel like trusting you is hard or thin. That frankly, the world beckons to us and we think, I don't know if this trusting God thing is working the way I thought it would. Please give us insight to when the devil is tempting us. Please help us know how to ask others for help. Say, hey, would you pray with me? Feeling tempted or struggling here. Please help us know again of the good news, even in this story, that Jesus is coming and has come and has risen. And give us courage to live in this world and to share that good news and to bring righteousness the way you call us to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We just go back into a song of worship and response um, to the word given today. We're going to sing, Lord, I need you again. Um, we'll just start with the first two. So feel free to sing along or just reflect and continue praying as you need. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is